Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. The uh, eminent documentarian Ken Burns just uh, released a four-hour documentary on Ben Franklin. So there's going to be probably some conversation about uh, the life of Benjamin Franklin. I thought it would do us well to talk to the man who probably knows more about the religious uh, opinions of Benjamin Franklin than anybody else. And that's Dr. Thomas Kidd, who's Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University, where he's also Associate Director of the Institute for Studies of Religion. He's also Distinguished Visiting Professor of Church History at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, and he's authored many books, including George Whitfield, America's Spiritual Founding Father, and uh, a wonderful book called America's Religious History, uh, Faith Politics and the Shaping of a Nation. He has a book coming out next month, I believe, on Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Our focus today, though, is uh, his work, Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. Dr. Kidd, good to have you back here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Let me ask uh, about this description uh, of John Adams that you quote in the opening to your book, uh, where it shows the kind of chameleon-like nature of Franklin's religious associations. Uh, Adams uh, writes that um, Catholics thought him almost a Catholic. The Church of England claimed him as one of their own. The Presbyterians thought him half a Presbyterian. And the Friends, that is the Quakers, believe him a wet Quaker. Uh, one who drinks, I suppose. Um, what to what do you attribute this w- weird kaleidoscopic look at his uh, religious faith? Well, I think it has to do with his beliefs, but also his temperament, and and I think Franklin correctly has a reputation for being uh, among the more cheerful of the founding fathers. Okay, so. He, he uh, you know, just had a friendly relationship with people that were part of a lot of different religious groups. Um, and so Franklin is, I mean, he calls himself a deist in, in his autobiography, so that's a pretty good place to start sure. to describe him. But he's a cheerful deist, and, and so uh, he, he's not like one of these, you know, new atheists today who, you know, is angry about religion. Right. And he's had you know, a bad experience or something. And, mm-hmm. uh, but he, he's, he's uh, a, a kind of cheerful skeptic, and, and I think he, he thinks that religion is basically a good thing as long as it's directed towards good works and, and not fighting about doctrine. So I think that gives him a reputation of being a, a kind of friendly, friendly inter- interlocutor with a lot of different religious groups. His primary concern would have been with virtue, then. Oh, for sure, and, or civic and virtue that, in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think he he uh, and and I th- he really is an innovator himself in terms of uh, civic virtue and uh, you, you know the value of institutions like hospitals. So he's he's one of the main sponsors of uh, Philadelphia's. Uh, original hospital, and when when he's promoting it, he makes a specifically Christian argument uh, for the value of having uh, good hospitals, and he thinks that Americans need to get on the ball with with this, where Europe's been moving forward uh, with this for a long time. 
I mean, he says that Christians should be interested in in taking care of the the poor and the vulnerable and the sick, um, and and he you know makes no bones about it. This being a, a Christian priority, and so even even though he is skeptical about basic Christ, Christian doctrines like the divinity of Christ and mm-hmm. so forth. He thinks that you can have, uh, you, you know, a kind of Christianity that is virtually doctrineless, uh, except maybe just a belief in, in God himself, um, but that you can put all the focus on uh, charity and virtue. Tell me a little bit about his upbringing as a, a, a Calvinist. Right, so he grows up in in Boston. A lot of people forget that because he's so identified with Philadelphia. But but he goes to Philadelphia as a teenager. Uh, but he grows up in Boston as the child of Puritan parents, and so a deeply Calvinist and uh, biblicist upbringing. And and this is part of the reason why Franklin uh, probably knows the texts of the Bible better than any of the other founding fathers. Um, he just he he knows the King James Bible just backward and, and forward and can quote it at will, um, and so he grows up with lots of uh, heavily doctrinal preaching um, and attention to the text of Scripture. And I think some of his um, reluctance about Christian doctrine and and especially fighting about doctrine comes from uh, what he saw growing up. Even though I think he would have also said that the Puritans were very committed in their way to Christian virtue and charity. Mm-hmm. Did he, did, would his experience uh, growing up have been of a, a cheerful religion, uh, or was it a dour and joyless upbringing? Well, I think he saw a mix of both in his, in his upbringing. Uh, but, you know, I, th- I think his parents were, um, you, you know, a good example of Christian piety for, for him, um, but what he didn't like was what he saw with going on with, with many Puritans, but, but also between different groups of Protestants and between Protestants and Catholics, obviously, was just centuries of fighting about doctrine. Yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, even many traditional Christians have gotten tired of that, too. But um, he, he thought that a lot of churches were more focused on uh, being you know, exceedingly precise about doctrine in expelling those who didn't toe the line, that they were more focused on that than uh, charity and good works. He mentions in the autobiography that he's a deist. Um, is that a did he was that an explicit commitment that he made, or is that a reference to his teen years and some of the uh, deist uh, writings that he was familiar with? Well, as as a boy, he started reading everything he could get his hands on, and and then he was apprenticed to his older brother, uh, who was a printer, and that gave him access to a lot of books, including uh, deistic books. And and as he tells it in his his autobiography, uh, he began reading a lot of deist authors. You know, probably by maybe his early teens, uh, even you know as. Mm-hmm. as a younger boy, and and he started to get interested in that, and that alarmed his father, uh, who again was a, a more traditional Calvinist Puritan, um, and he started to give uh, Ben Franklin anti-deist books to to read as a kind of counterweight. And Franklin, you know, everything that Franklin says in his autobiography, you sort of have to take with a grain of salt because it's 
it's very stylized and it's also written a lot longer after the the events in question happened mm-hmm. but um he says that the anti-deist books made him uh, believe in deism in even more because he <laughs> thought the deists had the better argument yep. and uh, and and that's the context in which he says i i became a thorough deist now i think that he was uh, it, you know, he went through a pretty radical phase, I think, as a young man, like sometimes young people do about mm-hmm. religion. And, and, uh, but probably over the course of his life, he became, he kind of gravitated, I think, back towards the faith of his, of his parents, but still he never got over that kind of youthful, uh, reluctance about traditional Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. Do deists believe in the efficacy of prayer? <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's some problems with, with it, you know, our traditional view of deism, because deism, in the, just kind of the pop view of what that means, is it would be uh, people who believe in the watchmaker right. god, and, and in other words, a creator god, but a god who is now uh, very distant and uninvolved in human affairs and maybe off doing something else. Um, that that is definitely not what mature Franklin believed in, and and uh, he he tended to think, well, you know, uh, it's not going to hurt anything to pray, um, and so it, it, you know, famously at the Constitutional Convention, you know, he's one of the few members of the convention who proposes that the uh, the Constitutional Convention open its sessions with prayer, um, and that may be a little surprising coming from someone who identifies as a right. deist, yeah. Yeah. but he thought, you know, praying, it can't hurt, and it probably will influence the members of a convention to be more charitable to one another. They've started bickering about things, and um, and, and so he, he thought we should open uh, sessions with prayer, but almost none of the other delegates thought that was a good idea. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> interesting. Sort of was a problem for the you know, Christian America folks, I mean, that, that, that sometimes you get the first half of that story that Franklin asked the convention to open with prayer, but they tabled the motion. Thought, well, that, <laughs> right. that's complicated, and who are we going to hire to be a chaplain? <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. we can't just up and pray, you know. I mean, you've got to have someone to lead the prayers. So yeah. uh, they tabled the motion and, and didn't open meetings with prayer. <laughs> uh you point out that he, you know, his cheerful disposition, his, he apparently made friends um, easily, uh, and he has friends from a wide range uh, of beliefs. And, and, and these are people he respects, even though they have uh, contradictory uh, beliefs. Uh, the, you've written an entire book on George Whitfield. Uh, called him the spiritual founding father of America. This was the, the greatest evangelist of the period. I think he died in 1770. Uh, how did he and, and Franklin know one another? How did they get along? They got along great, and it's, it really is a very unusual friendship because Whitfield, as you said, is, is the greatest evangelical preacher of the era. Um, and Franklin is definitely not an evangelical, right. and so, um, you, you know, they, they meet up because Whitfield, when he comes to America, he's looking for the best, uh, you know, kind of media man, as, as we might say today, 
Um, and Franklin is it. I mean, Franklin is the great innovator in newspaper and uh, other kinds of print publishing in Philadelphia. And so Whitfield says, I want to work with him because, mm-hmm. because it's, that, it's that important to get the message out. Um, and so they strike up a business relationship. And Fr- Franklin sees Whitfield and, and it sees his emerging celebrity and knows that he can probably make a ton of money off of, off, off of Whitfield, which he does. <laughs> Um, and selling Whitfield's uh, you know, travel journals and sermons and so forth makes a phenomenal amount of money for, for Franklin. But over time, it, it transforms into a, a really, I think, close friendship. Um, and and uh, that, you know, in spite of their religious differences, they've become quite close for decades. Dr. Kidd, hold it there. We'll come back, continue the conversation. Looking at Benjamin Franklin's religious life, uh, my guest, Dr. Thomas Kidd, He is author of Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Thomas Kidd. We're looking at uh, Benjamin Franklin, the religious life of this remarkable man. We were talking about his relationship with the, the evangelist, George Whitfield, and I'm I, I'm just wondering what they what would they have what would a conversation have been like between them? Where would they go? What, what was a were there doctrinal issues that they would talk about? Well, they did at times, and and even more specifically, I mean, Whitfield makes it very clear to Franklin that he thinks Franklin is not saved and that he needs to accept Christ for salvation. Yeah. And that's my favorite uh, letter from Whitfield to Franklin is one in which. After Franklin has gotten famous for his electrical experiments, uh, Whitfield writes to him and, and congratulates them, congratulates him on his uh, studies of the mysteries of electricity. He says, "But now I encourage you to study the mysteries of the new birth in Christ." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, you could just imagine Franklin sort of rolling his eyes and saying, I, "I'm all set." You know, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't need that. But and and of course, Franklin knew about that kind of faith and piety very well from his, his upbringing, but um, he, he had kept it at arm's length. And so, I mean, he and Whitfield were often not together because Whitfield was traveling sure. constantly, but, but they, they exchanged many, many uh, letters, and uh, they would talk about the business and what Whitfield needed him to print and that, that sort of thing. But it would often turn to, to spiritual issues. And, and that's one of the surprising things is how transparent they were about their differences, but their friendship endured in, yeah. in spite of that. Um, was Franklin considered something of an authority on religious matters? Well, one of the things I was surprised about in writing this religious biography of Franklin is just how much he wrote about religion, yeah. especially in his younger years. Now, when when he got involved in diplomacy, he, he became much less active in publishing on religion. But we think that Franklin probably published more as an author, a, a lay author on religion than anybody else in uh, 18th century America. Wow. Is, it's quite extraordinary when you think about all of Franklin's accomplishments in journalism and diplomacy and science that he, he's also taking time uh, to write on theological controversies, especially yeah. in the 1730s um, before he meets 
Whitfield, um, and and he's writing about some really technical theological issues. Uh, again, this uh, is often with with the theme of we shouldn't make be so eager to make enemies over doctrinal differences. Mm. Um, this, but but he's 17, able to take up in the 1730s. That's this this uh, heresy trial of Samuel Hempel. Is that right? Yes, that's right. He has a, a friend in, in the Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, who he a pastor who he really likes, who then gets in trouble for allegedly uh, heretical uh, theology, and and he gets involved and writes all this stuff about about Hempel's theology and why it's not objectionable, and you know he's basically just a more liberal Presbyterian right. Hempel is, and. Um, and Franklin comes to his defense, and, and but I, I guess one of the things I'm struck by is Franklin's capacity. I mean, it just speaks to his innate brilliance, but his capacity to take on really fairly academic theological questions and to engage in that in that debate and to just publish voluminously while he's working as a as a publisher himself. Um, it, it, it just speaks again to his his uh, brilliance, but also his fascination with religion and even technical theology. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, how does he, how does his family understand his religious commitments? His wife, for instance, Deborah. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a range. Um, his parents, I think, are worried about him. Um, you, you know, they they feel like he's fallen away from the family's faith, and mm-hmm. and he has. I mean, that, that's that's true. And and then his wife is, as far as we can tell, is is a more traditional Anglican Christian, um, and he he's perfectly fine with uh, you know going to church with her when when he's in town. And um, of course, for most of the second half of their marriage, he's he's away in Europe, um, and so they're they're not together. But um, he he will go, and and they have a rented pew in Christ Church Philadelphia, and um, he 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 doesn't ever seem to have any problem with religious practice per se, especially going to church and going to church with his wife and and that that sort of thing. But his wife. I think is um, you know definitely a more conventional Anglican, and of course it's not hard to be more conventional than Franklin. But, <laughs> okay. but uh, uh, and 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 so that there's no problem as far as I know uh, what, between them about religion. Um, and then he he also has a very uh, long-standing correspondence with uh, his his sister Jane. Um, who is uh, remains, you know, an evangelical in the Boston area, um, and and it, probably his closest sibling, um, and she is worried about him. But they also have a very sweet relationship um, and and uh, active correspondence. And they talk all the time about religious issues, including you know their common fondness for George Whitfield. Hmm, interesting. Um, this documentary that uh, Ken Burns just released really does make quite a bit of the of his absence from his wife. Um, yeah. And given and it had me thinking. I mean, Franklin is interested in the the that the virtue formation side of religion, um, and yet he is an absent uh, father and an absent husband. 
I'm just curious how that fits in with what he sees as the good works that ought to flow from one's religious commitments. Yeah, I I think that, uh, you know, Franklin has, he famously has this sort of, you know, chart of virtues that he yeah. <laughs> keeps for a while about, about uh, you, you know, various, you know, you know basic Christian or, or even classical virtues and how he does about keeping them. Um, but I don't see him uh, applying that to his uh, relationship with his wife, which is uh, definitely uh, seriously problematic. Um, and he, he, he knows in, in the later uh, years of his time in uh, England that she is in extremely poor health, uh, having had a stroke, um, and uh, repeatedly people, uh, his children, family members, uh, friends are saying, you, you really need to come back. And, um, and, and he even seems to delay uh, beyond the time when he's really needed in London anymore. Uh, for some reason, he just doesn't want to come back. Um, and then as soon as word comes that she has died, then he comes back. Um, and it, so it, it is. It's not a good moment for for Franklin. Um, and and something has has uh, they've become alienated, or he he's become inattentive, or or something like that. But it's it's pretty close to just being cruel the way that he yeah. acts towards her in, in the last years of their their marriage. And so I'm afraid, yeah, as, as as likable as Franklin is in many ways, that that is not a good moment for him. Yeah. Uh, while we're talking about family, uh, what's his relationship like with um, his son? Well, they they become estranged partly because of the uh, the way that, that Franklin treated Deborah, his wife, and um, and then uh, they they also um, uh, differ about their view of the American Revolution. Uh, William has become. Uh, prominent in, in politics in New Jersey by by the time of the revolution, and and he ends up going with the loyalist uh, side, and and so their their estrangement at that point is is kind of finalized, but but it's partly because of bitterness uh, about the way that Deborah is is treated. So it's it's that's a, a very complicated relationship too, to put it nicely, and. Um, so, you know, I, I, I agree with the, the sense of your question is that, you know, Franklin in his way, I mean, if it's on his terms, he, he definitely takes the mandate of charity very seriously and gives a lot of money and, and thinks very creatively in instances like the hospital mm-hmm. about how uh, people can be more charitable. But um, it, I don't see a lot of evidence that his sort of theoretical commitment to Christian ethics then extends to him changing things where he's tempted to act in a a more uh, venal way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is it true that he never, uh, he and his son never managed to reconcile? Not that we know of, yeah. I mean, they're they're permanently estranged. Okay. Um, Franklin's writings on religion, are they uh, from a particular period of time, or do they persist through his career? Well, most of the, the published uh, you know, writings on religion, per se, come out in uh, the first half of his life, 
um, partly when he's active in uh, the print business himself. And so, of course, he, among other things, has a ready publisher and yeah. um, is is active in, uh, I guess you would say, sort of Presbyterian politics in Philadelphia in, in those years. But when, uh, when he uh, begins his diplomatic career uh, for a lot of the time in England and then probably more famously in, in France, um, the, the you know, published treatises uh, and polemics sort of come to an end. But, but he's constantly commenting on religion in his vast correspondence. Okay. And he, he, even when he writes you know, political pamphlets uh, later on, it is very common for him to include biblical citations, sometimes extremely obscure ones. <laughs> hmm. I, I have to admit that sometimes, I, I mean, I, I try to read the Bible regularly myself, <laughs> but uh, sometimes I felt like this deist knows the Bible better than I do. <laughs> so it's a little embarrassing, but it, it speaks to, I think, the biblicist culture in which he was speaking. Yeah. And so he could pick out, you know, obscure references from the Bible and expect that much of his audience would, would know those references, too. Too so, um, you know, it, it never dries up in terms of references and allusions to scripture and quoting scripture and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Was he considered a latecomer to the patriot cause, the separation from England? Well, he was. I mean, he he was working to affect reconciliation as a diplomat in London, um, but he he uh, was. Increasingly, I think treated badly as a as a diplomat for the uh, American colonies, and so um, uh, by the time he uh, came back to America again, uh, timed uh, bizarrely with the, the death of his, his wife, uh, he I think he is ready to to receive, uh, if not independence, then certainly vociferous resistance against uh, uh, against the British. But it does. It seems to take him a long time, and that that may be partly just because of how he viewed his role as a diplomat, right? Yeah, you know, trying to broker a peace between the colonies and and London. Does he believe that uh, there's that providence has guided the founding? He does, and and I think that that is. I think it'd be pretty rare to find any of the founders uh, and and uh, th- that don't believe that somehow God has has guided independence. And I, I think that the weight of history uh, for the founders, and you see the same thing with Abraham Lincoln. I, I think there's a real uh, useful comparison to make between Franklin and Lincoln. Both had grown up in very traditional Calvinist homes, and then and then became influenced by skepticism and doubts about traditional Christianity, but then when they have to take on the enormous weight of the revolution in Franklin's case, civil war in, in Lincoln's case, you see the emergence in both of them of this kind of renewed providential understanding about yeah. God must be doing something. I mean, yeah. how can you view the weight of this history that they're dealing with, these events and classes and, and just world historical significance? And they, they think God is, is doing something here. The trick is understanding what God is doing. <laughs> right, right. But, but uh, you know, Franklin the Deist, you know, I, I think definitely believes God is involved in the American founding. Yeah. Dr. Kidd, thank you so much. Wonderful talking with you again. And uh, I'm looking forward to the new book on Jefferson. So I'll give you a call. Great. Sounds good. <laughs> 
Dr. Thomas Kidd, Benjamin Franklin, The Religious Life of a Founding Father. I'm Al Cresta.